You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. So I go at 6 a.m. every Tuesday morning and do Brazilian jiu-jitsu with a gi. And before I get to the workout, I take a 12 ounce coffee from Starbucks and a Myco Boost. And, and I use it as a pre-workout supplement really, and I love it. With each of these episodes, I'm just gonna cover really briefly one of the Natural Stacks products that I take. And I really like Myco Boost as a pre-workout supplement. And I've also used it on days where I'm lagging a lot and I feel like I have super low energy. It's Cordyceps Mushroom, which is a really unique mushroom that is really good for stem cell uh, performance and it's got yerba mate which is a jungle tea that uh, really gives you a good full body vitality and I've been drinking yerba mate in the afternoons on long work days for a while and uh, I really love the Myco Boost product and you can get it for 15% off at naturalstacks.com this is the first episode you've ever heard welcome so go ahead and use Mac 15 Shawnee Mac Mac M-A-C 15 and your you get 15% off your first online purchase so take advantage and if you work out or do jujitsu at 6 a.m. in the morning um, you can take my boost beforehand did y'all hear that we are releasing a Siltep to go pack Siltep is our original flagship product for memory enhancement and now it's available in a single serving tearaway pack it's awesome for traveling it's great for work put it in your backpack if you're going to school it is bar none the most effective nootropic i've ever taken i love it i take it almost every day three or four days a week and now it uh, comes in a box of 10 convenient single serving packets so you can get uh, 10 bucks off if you type in the code siltep for all c-i-l-t-e-p number four a-l-l to get 10 bucks off the to-go bag it's pretty dope in this episode of the optimal performance podcast i talk with dr michael fossil and michael fossil and i have a pretty amazing conversation about longevity about a possible cure for alzheimer's as well as uh, other cognitive degenerative diseases Dr. Fossil wrote uh, the author, he's the author of uh, the telomerase therapy, and he's the founder and former editor-in-chief of Rejuvenation Research. Uh, He's best known for his views on telomerase therapy as a possible treatment for cellular senescence and human-aged-related disease. Our conversation is really interesting. It moves really quickly, and uh, I get a ton of cool questions in there including how what can we do to increase our longevity as well as what sort of things does he take uh, as far as a supplement what he's working on now and um, human trials uh, potential for human trials into the, not only the the improvement of alzheimer's but the reversal of, of alzheimer's and for anybody who who knows someone who suffers from alzheimer's it's it's brutal and this is pretty big stuff. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy. And uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you like these episodes, let me know. Give us a review on iTunes. 
send me an email personally, review it on Natural Stacks website, you know, leave a comment. I really want to get in touch with more of you guys. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. Dr. Michael Fossil, thanks for joining us on the Optimal Performance Podcast today. My pleasure, Sean. Nice to have you, Dr. McCormick. <laughs> uh, so I start, I start out most of these with asking people what they've taken today. Uh, you know, it's midday on a Friday and I'm just sort of curious, not what your general vitamin regimen is based on the, the flavor of the day, but, but what do you have in your system midday today? Well, I just had an espresso. Nice. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had some blueberries. I had some brewer's yeast today. Um, uh, not much. That's it. That's it. Well, no, I must have had something else. I probably had a little cereal with the blueberries. I had some milk. Um, not much. Yeah. Keeping it, keeping it trim and simple. yeah, simple before, before a podcast. So let's start with this question. Uh, and I know it's, and I know it's broad, uh, but, but I think it really does sort of set the stage. How, how does aging happen? Well, let me say how it doesn't happen. Most people have the assumption that you just wear and tear, you you know, you rust, fall apart, you get old, that's the way things are. And it is more complex than that. But that also makes it simpler in some ways. Because really the reason you age is not because of entropy or wear and tear. It's because you stop maintaining yourself. So it's like having an old house. And the reason the house falls apart is not just because it's old, but because you stop caring for it. You know, if I have a 200-year-old a, a house and I take care of it all the time and I uh, take care of the paint and the roof and the electrical system, it'll last forever. But if I ignore the thing, it goes, you know, goes to hell pretty quickly. So it's a matter of maintenance in a, in a body. Uh, and to give you an idea of just the difference, if I look at your germ cells, you know, the ova and sperm cells that result in us being human beings, those cells as a cell line have been around for about three and a half billion years. Um, and they didn't age. They did fine. Uh, so you can't say that aging always happens. There are cell lines in which it doesn't happen. There are organisms in which it doesn't happen. It's not a question of, of wear and tear. It's a question of maintenance in the face of wear and tear. Which begs the question, of course, you know, how, how can we, how can we make, how can we have better maintenance of ourselves? How do we keep ourselves healthy besides not smoking, buckling your seatbelt, having a positive attitude? Yeah, it's funny you say that. You're right. I mean, somebody once asked me how you can live a longer life, and I say, fasten your seatbelt. It may not be sexy, but yeah, you'll live longer. <clears throat> um, but you're right. But all of those things are things that just tend to increase your wear and tear, whether it's smoking or, or you know, getting involved with head injuries and in football or whatever you do. Those things increase the rate of wear and tear. What you really want to do is keep up with the maintenance. <clears throat> and there, we know the cells are capable of it. Uh, one, because it's true in the germ cell line. Two, it's roughly true in the stem cell line. And three, we know in the laboratory, when we reset the maintenance process, it works fine in human cells, it works fine in human tissues. We also now know that if we do the same sort of thing in an organism like a mouse, we can reset most of the maintenance processes. So we know it's potentially possible. 
The way to do that, though, is to reset the pattern of gene expression, which brings us to telomeres telomerase, which is where we're going next, I think, John. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Please, please continue. Tell us, tell us about it. Well, the, I think of, of, of genes um, as, in some sense, the, the instruments in a symphony orchestra. And some people have this feeling that, you know, as your cells get old, the genes fall apart. No, it's the same genes. Same genes you had when you were young. It's just they're playing a different tune. So it's like having a symphony orchestra that could play either Mozart or Grateful Dead. And they're different tunes. You can play them with the same instruments if you want to. The instruments aren't a problem. As you get older, it's not that the piano is out of tune and the violin strings are broken. It's not that your genes don't work. It's simply that they're being expressed with a different tune. And the conductor for that tune is the telomere, among other things. And it turns out that if we tell the conductor, in this case the telomere, to play the tune it used to when you were young, it works fine. So, for example, if I take human cells, back in 1999 this was done, if I take human cells, re-extend the telomere, they go back to playing the same genetic tune they played when they were young cells. They work fine. And we know that as of 2000, and this was true in 2001, 2002, a whole series of studies, if we do this with human tissues, same thing. So that you can take, for example, an old coronary artery and grow young coronary artery tissue if you reset telomeres, likewise skin, likewise bone. So the question is, yeah, you can do that in cells, you can do that in tissues, but can you do that in you and I? And the answer is, we didn't know. We suspected we could. And it's only been in the last five years that we've had the technical ability to take this to human trials, so next year we will. And, and what, what can our, I think, running this out and, and, and considering the implication for, for helping treat Alzheimer's and degenerative cognitive diseases like this, like what, what can you tell us about about what you're doing now and what you're working on now, because you're light years ahead of, I think, I think many people. And I think, I think our listeners would be surprised to hear how far along uh, you really are. Well, we're going to start with Alzheimer's. And the reason is because it's the sort of the high hanging fruit. It's not the easy thing. Everyone thinks you can't cure Alzheimer's. In fact, when I talk to big pharma around the world and I talk to biotech companies, they're all <clears throat> hoping at best, they can slow the disease process. I don't know any other company that thinks they can stop it or reverse it, but we're pretty convinced we can. We're confident we can actually reverse much of the cognitive decline and get people's brains back, in a sense, because that's what happens in animals when we do this. And again, we predicted to be able to do this, but that's what the data shows. So we're going to start with Alzheimer's and run the human trial, show that we can actually reverse some of the cognitive decline, that is, get memory back, get cognition back, and so forth. And then we're going to do two things. We're going to move on to other dementias like Parkinson's disease, uh, frontotemporal dementia, a whole host of these things, vascular dementias. But we're also going to move on to vascular disease, disease in general. I mean, most people in the world in developed nations tend to die of, uh, of aging arteries, not aging brains. And both of them are serious. But, uh, you know, the, the biggest uh, killer really is aging arteries. So you're thinking of strokes, heart attacks, aneurysms, peripheral vascular disease, congestive heart failure, the whole list goes on and on. Um, but we have even better data that suggests we can go after that and make a difference in it. So, yeah, we're going to start with Alzheimer's because no one believes we can do anything about that. There's not a lot to offer. And then move on to vascular disease. When it comes to vascular disease, there are other alternatives. They're not very good. There are things like stents and statins and coronary you know, artery bypass grafts and heart transplants. Uh, nothing that really stops the disease. It just sort of seems to help a bit, but we can do better than that. We can do much better than that. And, and from the different treatments, uh, you know, I was, I was doing, uh, doing a re doing research about, you know, potential 
um, supplements that that actually um, that are, that are anti aging medicine, and the list is gigantic. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of of, of different um, supplements that that people have tried. Um, nicotine among them, licorice, leptin, juvate. What what sorts? What would the protocol look like to actually have a a not just a slowing effect but reversing effect? Like, what would the treatment look like? Well, initially, uh, we're going to do it a little bit differently. But um, in the long run, what it involves is a single shot IV. Theoretically, it could be given orally or intranasally. And really what we're doing is we're delivering a normal human gene that is essentially locked up in your cells, letting it be expressed for a short time to reset telomere lengths and reset gene expression. So initially, in our human trials, it'll almost certainly be done what's called intrathecally. Think of it as a, a, a lumbar puncture, uh, you know, epidural, subdural. Um, but uh, that has to do with some technical considerations we have initially. In the long run, though, we're looking at IV, and you're probably looking at a, sort of a booster shot in a sense every three to 10 years and a one-time treatment, yeah. not a, not a three pills a day. No, no, it's just one-time treatment. And let me say also that, you know, it, diet plays a role in a sense. Um, it, you can be very unhealthy and have a terrible diet at age 20. And we may be able to give you the, the physiology and the body of a 30 or 40 or 20 year old, but that doesn't mean you should eat badly either. So, yeah. So, so is it, is it akin for for those of us that are that are just just trying to wrap our brains around it? Can we think of it almost? I mean, can we think of it like a vaccine? Well, uh, you know, not in any technical sense, but it in some sense, uh, in far as you know, getting a shot every now and then, it acts like one. Really, what it's doing is resetting the clock in a sense within the cells. Resetting the clock within the cells, right? Yeah, it's not an immunization in any sense, right? But there are a lot of parallels now that you mention it. I mean, if I think back about the history of polio, for example, you know, the, the first polio vaccine came out in 1954. And if I go back to 1953, one of the best-selling books in the U.S. was a book called Diet Conquers Polio. Well, <clears throat> diet didn't really conquer polio. On the other hand, it probably improved your chances slightly in terms of your immune system and so forth. And you could understand why people were, were paying lots of money for the book and taking lots of dietary advice because there was nothing else to do. Um, but the same thing is true about so many other things that were available back then. People were trying oxygen, vitamin C, all sorts of things that sound like what we're trying to do these days for Alzheimer's. And I'm not going to say they don't work, but I'd rather have the polio vaccine than just a good diet. I'm in favor of a good diet, right. but if that's polio vaccine versus best diet in the world, I'd still go for the polio vaccine because it'll prevent polio. That's kind of where we are with Alzheimer's. Right now, the answer is, I, you bet. I'd try anything I could, certainly diet. But I think we can do a lot. More. Right. First things first. Make sure that you're make sure that you're doing everything that you can control, and from a from a dietary exercise aspect. What um, and then and then you know look at look at more um more exotic treatments or even even just you know exogenous treatments stuff that doesn't involve you know diet and lifestyle. Do you see, and because I'm, I'm trying to think about what the implications are if, if, if we can actually reverse cognitive decline and, and cardiovascular decline and reverse it, what is it, is it, is it like in 10 years, the average lifespan is going to just skyrocket hockey stick growth? Is it, is it reasonable to expect that in the next 10 or 20 or 50 years that 
that we that because th- this goes into longevity like what are we looking at as far as increased lifespan overall well the the honest answer is no one knows but let me put it in her perspective if i look back historically if i go back say 200 years where the average lifespan in a lot of countries 200 years ago was 25 years there were people who lived 100 but not many of them you know the average age of death was say 25 and if I go back 100 years, it was perhaps 50, and now it's about 75. Again, I'm roughing these figures out. What we've done is increased the, the mean lifespan, but we've never increased the maximum lifespan. So if I went back 200 years, there were some people who made it to 120, but there weren't many. Now there are a few more people, but there aren't many. What we're looking at is changing the maximum lifespan. So the, the mean lifespan has always been something we can improve with diet, hygiene, uh, avoiding violence. Lots of things can improve, you know, seatbelts can improve your mean lifespan. But changing the maximum lifespan has never been done in human history. And yet that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. What's, what's, a, <laughs> if you had to throw a, throw a dart at a dartboard to pick, to pick a, a, a maximum age, something that's, something that's reasonable. Is it 120? Is it 140? <laughs> Who well, knows? I, you know, again, just looking, just looking at the animal data. I don't see any reason we can't easily hit 150. But beyond that, it sort of depends on how well we can get this to work. More importantly, though, is being healthy to do this. And really, you know, there was a poll a couple of years ago that said to people, if you could live to be 150, would you do it? And most people said no, because they're thinking an extra 30 years in the nursing home. No, thank you. And they're right about that. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, an extra 50 years being able to play tennis, dance with your granddaughter. Um, go out and garden, uh, wander the world, protect, go to work, do things, enjoy yourself, uh, not be in a nursing home. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think, I think, yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a clearer picture to ask is how can I how can I live like a seventy five year old into my one twenties, right? One into my one thirties, or live like a forty year old into your one. Yeah, right. man i'm just trying to wrap my brain around that i mean dude when, when you share that information with people does it blow their mind yeah and so usually i don't put it quite so badly yeah. because again you know as i always say theory is one thing data is another so rather than just talk about it it's time to take it to human trials and see what happens yeah are there any diseases you know you talked about what this is likely you know parkinson's and, and stuff like that are there any diseases that you think cannot be cannot be reversed through to through the therapy? Oh yeah. yes, you know the first category that comes to mind would be things like inherited diseases, inherited genetic diseases. There are a lot of kids that die before age five because of inherited genetic disease. This doesn't change that, uh, with the exception of things like progeria. Kids who you know at age five look like they're seventy-five. This changes that. Um, but for adult diseases, you know, if you're looking at things like trauma, if you're looking at things like uh, infectious disease, not much of that changes. On the other hand, uh, you know, 75-year-olds die a lot more rapidly than 25-year-olds for an infectious disease. So what we're looking at is bringing the rate of infectious disease death back to that when you were younger. It doesn't cure infectious disease. It just makes your immune system act more like you were younger. So anything that involves aging is something that we think will be amenable to this treatment. So we're looking at age-related diseases, yeah. with the exception of progeria, which is a related yeah, problem. Yeah, the anomaly. 
So cancer wouldn't fall necessarily into that category. Well, that's an odd one. You know, a lot of people in the literature who should know better think that there's this trade-off. And if you extend telomeres, you actually increase cancer risk. The data actually suggests that it's complex. Let me just say it's complicated. Um, but in fact, we can probably use the same approach to prevent many cancers, and it may be, in fact, be useful for treating some cancers. That's an odd thing to say, but we've got reasons to say it. So it, cancer is an odd one. In some cases, this may prevent cancer. I'll give you an example of this. You know, one of the reasons that cancer goes up as we get older is that your DNA repair enzymes get turned down. There are four major families. Every one of them gets turned down. So you're no longer repairing your DNA as well. So in the few minutes you and I have been talking, probably every cell in your body has had a DNA hit, has had some, some problem occur, and it's been fixed before probably I finish the end of the next sentence. It got fixed. Um, but the rate of repair goes down with age. And the consequence of those four different families of DNA repair enzymes all being turned down is that the rate goes up exponentially. Now, this is true whether you're a mouse that lives two years or whether you're a human that lives 80 years. So what we're doing is resetting that rate of DNA repair. In that sense, that lowers your risk of cancer. But again, it's more complicated than that, like most things in life. Yeah, right. Right, because because cancer is a is a is a growing thing. It's a developing thing. And if we're looking, if you're looking at lengthening tel- uh, telomeres, and 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 I think that's an important point because one of the things that that I heard you say a little earlier was it's not the length of the telomeres; it's the relative length of the telomeres. Can you can you explain that a little bit further for for our listeners? Yeah, um, let me give an example of this. You know, there are varieties of mice that have telomeres that are literally fifteen times, sorry, literally ten times longer than mine, and yet they have lifespans that are literally forty times shorter than mine. So, an average mouse lives about two years. I live say about eighty years, and yet they have longer telomeres. Why would that be? And it turns out it's not the telomere length that matters, it's the change in telomere length. And even then, it's not the change, it's what it does to gene expression. So over a mouse lifespan, those cells, the pattern of gene expression gets turned down in the same sense mine does. They do it within two years, mine does it within 80 years. And it's all controlled by the length of telomere or the change in length of telomeres. So it's not the absolute telomere length. That doesn't matter worth a darn. What does matter is what happens as that length shortens. Yeah, and how and how it's expressed, like what it's what it's doing. Oh yes, uh, to give you a kind of a crazy analogy, um, back to the house. Okay, when I shorten my telomeres, it's sort of like saying, uh, "Stop repairing your house, stop repainting it, uh, pay no attention to the fact that the pipes are leaking," and and all we're saying is turn up the maintenance rate again. That's what lengthening a telomere does. It just just says, "Get up and start maintaining the place again." So it does better. Yeah, yeah, that's. Th- it's the maintenance problem. Right. A- aging, aging is a failure of maintenance. It is not just wear and tear. It's wear and tear in the face. And of when you're not doing the maintenance, you're not protecting yourself from, you know, from environmental stimuli. So you're more susceptible to catch something. You're, 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 yeah, the whole system uh, is affected when you don't do the maintenance. And again, as we said before, on the other hand, you can increase the rate of wear and tear by not exercising, by eating badly, eating a bad diet. Uh, by engaging in risky behaviors, all of those increase your rate of maintenance, uh, your rate of wear and tear. Uh, If I go out and uh, if I have light skin and go out and get sunburns every day, I'm sorry, you're increasing your skin aging. That's just the way life is. So we can increase the maintenance rate, but we still need people to pay attention to the rate of wear and tear and not do stupid things. (laughs) Easy easy to say, easy for you to say. (laughs) 
asking people. <laughs> well, you know, some people age fast, some people age slowly, and it's not just genetic. Partly, it's what they do with it. Right. <laughs> um, is this something you know? Because we're 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 really interested in in self measurement, self experimentation to track, um, so that we can improve and we know where our sort of pitfalls are. Um, and the case, you know, the case of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Parrish kind of comes up, you know, in, in reading about, um, telomeres and stuff like that. And, and because Elizabeth Parrish was, uh, you know, CEO, CEO of, a, of a company that was, that was researching this, she had access to, to these, to these therapies. And in, in one of the write-ups, it talks about how she tested herself and she found that she was, that her telomeres were shorter than um than what they should have been for her age is is that something uh for those of us who aren't ceos of 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 uh you know research facilities and and organizations is that something that's that that you maybe see coming down the line where people can actually test their length and and make specific changes or or to their own sort of life or lifestyle or, or medications that they can that they can benefit from well, the quick answer is no, it doesn't make a lot of difference. Again, it's complicated. But let me give you an example of this. <clears throat> you know, it, you and I, just if nothing else happened, are most likely to die of vascular aging. Okay. And that has to do with the aging of our coronary arteries, for example. And if I measure my white blood cells the same way Liz did, or many people do, you know, with telomere testing, those aren't the cells that are involved in heart disease. Those are cells that are your immune cells wandering around your bloodstream. So you're measuring the wrong cells. That's one problem. And this comes up again and again in academic papers all the time. Somebody talks about liver cancer and they measure your white cells, wrong cells. Um, the second problem is that those cells actually are not, um, how do I put this? It, you're sort of measuring them wrong. Um, so here is a, a typical sort of paper I see. Somebody says, we took uh, 50 people. We measured their telomeres, meaning in their white cells. And then we put them on a vegetarian diet. We had them do a meditation every day. We had them get a dog. We had them, you know, anything that they can think of to make their lives better. And sure enough, in six months, they had longer telomeres. Well, <clears throat> that doesn't prove a thing. It proves you lowered stress. But the problem is the telomeres you're measuring, you're not measuring the telomeres back in the marrow. You're measuring the ones that are circulating. And those don't wear down as fast if you lower stress. So, for example, say right now you've got influenza. You've got the flu that's going around. I measure your telomeres, they offhand will be shorter than they would once you finish getting off the flu, because now your body's not churning around white cells anymore. So if I come back six weeks later, after you've gotten over the flu, your telomeres will look longer. Well, it doesn't mean I make you younger, it just means they're not getting churned as much, not getting turned over as much. Here's an analogy. It would be like me saying, listen, 50 years ago, I went to a, a little block in the Bronx in New York. And I measured the average lifespan, or the yeah, the average the average age of people in that one city block in the Bronx, and it was 72. And now I did some interventions. I did some urban planning. I built this. I, I gave tax breaks to that. And I'll go back to the same block 50 years later, and the average age in that city block is no longer 72; it's 35. I did not make them younger. See what yeah. I mean? All it means is they're not the same people. That's the same thing with your white cells. If I put you on a vegetarian diet, teach you meditation, and get you a dog, make you go out and exercise every day, that doesn't necessarily make you younger. You're just changing the white cells you're measuring. In the same sense, I'm measuring different people in the city block in the Bronx. Yeah. You know, 50 years later in the Bronx, 
a bunch of yuppies have moved in. They've had kids. They're starting little companies. And guess what? They've got five-year-olds around in place of World War II. Right. I didn't make them younger. I'm just looking at different people. I certainly didn't make the entire country younger when I did that any more than if I measure your telomeres and then put you on a diet and so on. I made you younger as a whole body. It just, it doesn't mean that. Now, it doesn't mean that meditation and vegetarian diets and exercise aren't good for you. It just means the articles that claim those make you younger aren't measuring the right thing. They're making it up. That's just, that's just not right. What, what, what's the distinction between the surface white blood cells and the marrow white blood cells? Would that be a more accurate uh, uh, research point? Oh, yeah, it would be. So I give you, uh, I'm going to make these numbers up, but I'll give you an example of this. Let's say that right now I measured the, the stem cells in your marrow and that the average telomere length is, say, uh, 10,000 base pairs, okay? And I measure your white blood cells, and they're 8,000 base pairs because they've divided a bunch of times, okay? And, in fact, you're under a great deal of stress. You lost your job. Your, your, your lover left you. You name it. You're under a great deal of stress. And those white cells outside in your peripheral bloodstream are turning over. And, by the way, there's only a small percent that you're measuring out there because some of them aren't even in your blood vessels. But so you're measuring an odd sort of sample, but they're dividing because you're under stress. Now I lower your stress. I come back in six months and you're feeling a lot better. Now the peripheral white cells are 9,000 base pairs. They look like they've gone up, up a thousand base pairs. But now if I measure your, your marrow blood cells, they're at 9,900 base pairs. So you're actually older if I look at the stem cells. But if I look at your peripheral cells, it looks like you got younger. Mm. No, you didn't. You just removed the stress. That's all you did. Got it. Got it. So it has obviously has a uh, has a lot to do with external factors that are that are influencing the actual the actual telomere length. Okay, but let me say this: say that you had a lot of money and patience, and what you wanted to do is measure your peripheral white cells, their telomere lengths, every six months for five years, and there's a trend. There's a yeah. trend. So yeah, that would be true, but that's not what most studies ever do. They do two points, and they declare that they've made people younger. Maybe they did, but that's not what they did. Right. How many how many longitudinal studies are out there? None that I can think of right away. You know, they all tend to look at a couple of data points. And again, the problem is they're measuring the wrong thing. It's just like measuring the average age of some block in the Bronx over 100 years or 50 years. It just it doesn't mean what they say it means. And again, let me stress, my guess is that meditation, vegetarian diets and exercise, all those things are probably perfectly good for you. But that's not what the data shows. Right. Right. Do you think it's just sloppy, sloppy research? I mean, or I mean, I think people don't think about what the white cells mean. There's a tendency to think if I measure your telomeres and your white cells, I'm measuring your total body telomeres. You're not. And then most people are not aware of the factor that the, the white cells are most depends on which side you're looking at, B cells or T cells, but that they're dividing peripherally. And so they're measuring the wrong thing. They're not aware of the complexity involved in the physiology. They just think it's a simple decline. It isn't. Okay. So does that does that suggest that you know? Because I'm looking at I'm looking at all these um, astragalus supplements, you know, and and what's available out there. Is it is it is it still worth taking that stuff because it might have a, a general you know general effect? I think it is. And there you're looking at better data. I mean, there are at least three papers out. Now there are a couple of more looking at some other odd cases where we know that estragenol, for example, seems to have an effect over about a six-month period at least. Uh, and you're measuring not just peripheral telomere lengths, but now you're measuring things like your response to insulin, your bone mineral density, your immune response when you stimulate the immune system. 
you're measuring things that actually make a difference. So I would say that the the data that suggests that estragenol and the astragalocytes uh, have an impact on telomere length and and aging or health are pretty good. Not overwhelming, not, you know, let's break out a bottle of champagne and boy, that's, no, but they're pretty good. It's intriguing stuff. And it's the kind of thing we expect. I think that a, a number of us have a feeling that if you were trying to quantitate this, you'd say that um, the, the astragalocytes are probably about 5% as effective as what we want them to be. Whereas the kind of thing we're talking about doing with human trials, that's, now we're up at the 100% sort of level. Yeah. Is there, is there, a, do you take, do you take, do you take any sort of astragalus supplements or estrogenol? Yeah, yeah. I do. Uh, yeah, I do. And, and, you know, people ask me if it's really beneficial or if it's worth taking. And it, there are a couple of answers to that. One is there is no overwhelming data that proves that it reverses aging. It just looks pretty suggestive. So one, do you believe the data? Second question is, where did you get this stuff? Is it a reliable right. source or are they selling you? you know, selling you snake oil. So the question is, how good is the source? The third question is even more important, which is how much does it cost? Now, if you're a billionaire and you've got some age-related diseases, it's definitely worth it because it doesn't cost much in that, in that scenario and it may work. On the other hand, if you're on a fixed income and it's costing more than you've got a month, I'm sorry, it's just not worth your trouble, particularly if you're healthy in the first place. So trying to figure out whether this is worth it or not sort of depends. Yeah. Are you healthy? Are you rich? Uh, is have you got a reliable source? And does this stuff really work? It probably does to an extent. Well, I have to imagine that that if if you're if you're extremely wealthy and also extremely interested in longevity, you're going to do just about anything. And if there's you know if there's if there's little or no side effects or side effects that you can live with, um, and you're getting the top notch stuff, like you you're probably going to live longer. <laughs> I mean, that's just that's just the way that it goes. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking at some of the prices uh, of this stuff is it's I mean, it's it's really it's really expensive. It, yeah, typically you're looking at a couple of hundred dollars a month and depends on what you mean by a couple of hundred. But yeah. And the dose. Um, yeah, it's it's not cheap. On the other hand, it might work. Right. So is it worth it or not? I don't right. know. Tough one. Can That's like saying, is it, you know, is it worth having insurance, health insurance? Uh, well, if you're going to get sick, it's worth it. If you don't get sick, you've just wasted money. I don't know. <laughs> Good right. right. There's no way to know. Is there in, in your understanding of, of it, you know, if, if I go to, obviously if I, if I go to like the Chinese medicine shop and, and, you know, find some astragalus root, that's not going to be as good as, as a, you know, lab cultivated processed you know, extract or something like that. Right. Well, I know someone who did exactly that about 20 years ago, went out and measured some available uh, stragulus roots found in Chinatown, for example, at least two cities. And the answer was, nope, there were no active ingredients. <laughs> so, but you never know. I mean, maybe you've got just the right herbal shop and you're okay, or maybe things have changed in 20 years or, you know, don't right. know. And, you know, never mind the stragulus roots, there are a lot of things that people waste an awful lot of money on that probably have no effect whatsoever. To use that same analogy again, back to polio. You know, in 1952, people did all sorts of things to keep their kids from dying of polio. Most of those things probably had no effect, but I don't blame them for trying. Sure. Of those, of those things that that people are, you that you know people are trying to take for for longevity. Um, what 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 doesn't make any what what sort of things are red flags? Doesn't make sense. They don't work for you. Well, 
I sometimes think that the more you see of advertising or the more it costs, the less likely it is right. to work. And that's certainly not really true. But, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, sort of the sarcastic element of me looks at life that way sometimes. And there's certain truth to that. Um, you know, there, there are so many products out there, natural products or otherwise, that do things that nobody's going to advertise. For example, uh, you know, we know that if you tend to use vinegar in your hair every day, you won't get dandruff. But I've never seen anybody advertise vinegar as an anti-dandruff shampoo. Well, because you can't really make money selling yeah. vinegar. So what else? You know, um, it's the way life is. So people sell things that may or may not be useful. Astragalus root or astragal, you know, astragal at least probably is effective. Um, but I think that most of the other things I see out there that people make claims for in aging, whether it's a skin cream or otherwise, probably don't. There are a few exceptions where there's some data in favor of them, but most things is just a claim. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you on uh, on stem cell therapy? Depends on who's doing it. Um, you know, we know that there are some benefits that can be gotten from stem cells, um, but it sort of depends on where you got the stem cells and how good they are and what you've done to them to make them work better. Uh, let me give you the again the sort of the the sarcastic view of stem cells for a minute, um, just to sort of play the the pessimist. Please do. Um, let's say that you're going into you know use stem cells in your knees but you're removing stem cells from your marrow to put in your knees. Well, so let's see, I'm simply moving them from one part of the body to the other. Why should I think they'll do any good? Well, the fact is sometimes they do. Um, you're, you know, you're putting marrow, cell, marrow stem cells where they may actually do some good. But you've got to ask yourself why somebody's taking cells from my body, putting them back in my body, and charging me a whole lot of money and telling me I'm going to work better. Yeah, so, yeah. Again, it's not that simple. In fact, sometimes it does. But it's certainly not just because you call them stem cells doesn't mean suddenly you've cured the disease. You really have to ask yourself, what have they done to the cells? Where are they? What's the data that shows they work? And there are probably a lot of people out there who are saying that they work and saying that they're doing these things and they're not or they're being unsafe. Having said that, yeah, I think there's an enormous potential for stem cells. And there's a lot of data that suggests that it can do a lot of good. Yeah. How about but it's a, it's a, you know, it's a buyer beware sort of. Well, thing. and and yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a theme here, uh, which is there are no simple answers, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's pretty much. There is thing. no, there is no magic wand. Um, you know, we can't speak in absolutes. What, what about, what about for gene therapy? Well, we know that gene therapy again can do a lot of good. I mean, the classic case is spinal muscular atrophy, which just got it went through the phase two trials. And as you probably know, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine had an article on the beautiful trial uh, published last November, a couple of months ago. And the company that did that, Avexis, just got bought by Novartis within the last week for eight point seven billion dollars. Well, I'll be done. Uh, <laughs> now that's different from saying it works, and the data shows it works. But when somebody's willing to fork out that much money for a company, that's pretty impressive. It tells you something's going on someplace. And in fact, again, the data suggests what's going on is that it works. You can actually cure some diseases. So I think what we're seeing is finally, after 20 years of intermittent gene therapy trials, we're finally seeing some very successful trials that are very impressive. In short, you can take a genetic disease in some children and cure it. Cure it. Not just maybe make these people live enough. No, cure it. So, yeah, it's very impressive. Now, what we're talking about is a gene therapy, too, although it's a very different kind of gene therapy because we're not putting in a gene you don't have or substituting a gene and changing genes. We're just using it to reset gene expression, which is an odd case. Example, if I've got a, a kid with spinal muscular atrophy, what you want to do is give them a new gene. 
Um, and you like that gene to stick around for decades and decades, not simply a couple of weeks or months. We have a very different approach. We are perfectly happy if it gets expressed for a couple of weeks or months and then goes away totally because we're not trying to keep it in permanently. We're just trying to reset the clock. Mm-hmm. So it's still a different kind of gene therapy. There, I, you know, I, I did a, a, an editorial on this a couple of months ago. I pointed out there are about five different kinds of gene therapy, depending what you're trying to do. Um, there are lots of kinds of gene therapy. Here's an example. Uh, there's some gene therapies now being used to treat what are called bacteriophages that actually attack bacteria. They're viruses that attack bacteria. And the idea is to, to use gene therapy to actually build bacteriophages that cure uh, bacterial illness. So rather than be giving antibiotic, you'd be giving a bacteriophage, one that was tailored uh, to your particular bacteria. So whether it's resistant or not, not a problem. We just change the gene and go after it. Great idea. Now, this doesn't mean it's gotten to clinic yet, but it's an intriguing idea, and it's one of these multiple different kinds of gene therapy. Huh. So what are what are the five? What are the five that you... I'm darned if I can remember. <laughs> you know, not one fair. Of them, one of them is that, yeah, one of them is that you want to go in and you want to actually uh, put a new uh-huh. gene in, okay? For example, spinal muscular atrophy. Another one is where you're actually rewriting the gene you've got. So you're using CRISPR technology to take the gene you've got and not replace it, just rewrite it. Another would be the bacteriophage example. Another one would be um, what we're talking about, that you're using telomerase. I can't remember what my fifth one was, but there are four right off the yeah. bat. They're all a little bit different in what they do, how they work, what are the side effects, what are their, their potential benefits. A little different. What? But they're all gene therapies. Yeah. What, what drew you into this line of work? What, what really, what, I mean, like from, um, from your heart, you know, right. What what really drew me in was, uh, all right, uh, years ago, there's probably 40 years ago, I was working with development of the nervous system, which very much impressed me. But I noticed that when I talked to professors, graduate students, medical students about the other end of life, about the nervous system not being built, but coming apart, people would shrug and say, what do you expect? Yeah, people get old, falls apart. And I thought, that's an awfully blasé attitude. And I got to say, it sort of, well, it pisses me off when people sort of shrug and think it's something simple. That usually means they're not thinking very carefully. So I began to wonder what was really going on with aging. And the more I got into it, the more I realized it was much more complex than I thought it was, much more complex than most people think it was. The other thing that hit me <clears throat> was that there was a sort of a blind man on the elephant phenomenon. There were an awful lot of people around who were focused, for example, on free radicals or mitochondria or uh, what are called age uh, um, molecules or uh, a number of things they were focused on. Um, But they were talking about different parts of the elephant. So it wasn't that the people were wrong, but they thought that it all all revolved around their particular part of the elephant. You know, one person was looking at the tail, one at at the ear, one at the trunk, and they were all making these different claims, but they were ignoring the rest of the elephant. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how you put the elephant together until about 1990, 1991, when the first really good evidence came out about the role of telomeres in age-related cells or in aging cells. And finally, I began to see how you could take all these disparate parts, the mitochondria, the DNA repair, the you know, reactive oxygen species, the, the liposomes, all of these things, and put it together in one homogenous piece. And it fit. And the data supported it, as I say, at the turn of the century. And now, we can actually do it with animals. So that's what happened to me. Was there was there a moment? Was there? Do you remember the moment where you're like, "Oh my gosh, this is this is what I really want to devote myself to"? 
Well, that's what I wanted to do in graduate school, but I couldn't figure out where you'd go. Every single thing I looked at seemed to be sort of a dead end. There was, as I say, no way to put the elephant together. For me, that that big point where I went, oh my God, I see what, what's going on here, happened at a, a conference in Tahoe back in about 1992 or so, uh, when I first saw this remarkable data on telomeres, because one, there are three things that happened. One is, I realized where you could put the elephant together. It all began to click and come together. Two, the data was superb. It, things lined up. It wasn't sort of like a bunch of scattered points on a, on a chart and people made claims about, no, no. You could look at it and see it. It just worked. The third thing was that the guy who first was talking about this was a remarkably careful fellow, which I respect. He's the kind of guy that, you know, right now, Sean, you're wearing what looks like a black shirt. And somebody says to me, what color is Sean's shirt? I would say, I would say it's black. He would have said, I don't know. The side facing me is black. I can't tell about the back. Sure. You know? Very careful. Yeah. Back. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So when he put the data up, he didn't say, this shows so-and-so. He said, here's the data. Yeah. That's good. I like this. A lot of respect for that approach. And you continue with that as well, right? I mean, it sounds like that's how you approach your, your research still. Well, yes, it is. You know, if somebody says to me, do I think we can cure Alzheimer's? The answer is, yeah, I think we can. But if somebody says, can you, the answer is, let's see the data. We'll wait and see. Um, you know, we intend to, uh, when we have the data, tell people the data and not make grandiose claims about what we have done. We'll say, here's what the data shows. Look at that. Yeah. See what you guys think. So, yeah, if you ask me personally what I think, I think we can cure Alzheimer's. If you're asking me, can we, the answer is, wait till we get the data. We'll see. Right. Right. Do you have, how do you think about your own? longevity and do you have um do you have you know you and your you and your brewer's yeast and uh and your seat belts you know <laughs> when you drive do you have a do you have a goal for yourself and your family a goal in what way sean do you mean just to stay healthy yes. yeah i mean are you are you are you expecting are you Cause I have, cause I have goals, uh, for, for my wife and my kids and myself too. It's good to have goals. Don't you think? <laughs> do, you, do you, do you have a, do you have a sense of what sort of, uh, lifestyle and physical health you will have into your one twenties, one forties, one fifties? And I don't No, I don't think I'll day by yeah. day, but I will say this, you know, I had a, a great grandfather who died at age 97. He was dating a younger woman. She was only 89. He said he was robbing the cradle. <laughs> and after a heavy day, his wife had died of tuberculosis, so he was dating this younger woman. On the way home, he was speeding around a corner, an icy corner, um, in his Model T when he was trying to light a cigar at the same time, lost control, hit a tree. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to do it. You got to go? That's all right. On a date, lighting a cigar, speeding, you know. Apparently, his younger girlfriend regretted the loss of the Model T. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. Yeah, the one day to taking it one day at a time. It, that really is that really is the way to the way to go. And and I think that our our listeners, you know, uh, understand that. And if you know if if eating uh, for ketosis uh, gives them more energy and gives them better brain clarity, then they're going to do it. And they're going to develop a daily practice around it, you know? Uh, and, and, and in that same way, you know, if, if there's, if there's other supplements and, and um, you know, infrared sauna use that we can do to take it day by day, you know, like, 
then then we should do, do you how do you see yeah, i know that you're a daily meditator um do you believe that that's going to keep your keep your brain young and smart and sharp uh, i don't know and and i mean that in a very honest way i tell you that you know there are probably things out there that we can all do that make us healthier and there are probably some things out there that actually are dangerous for us that we think would make us healthier and there are a lot of things that don't make any difference at all and we all think we know the dividing lines between those things. And I think we don't. Uh, again, looking back historically, if I go back to about the 50s, everybody said you've got to give up butter and take margarine. Now we'd say the opposite. Back then you'd say eggs are bad for you. And now we'd say, no, they're not. And my guess is that almost everything you can think of that you think is bad for you or good for you, all you've got to do is wait about 40 years and somebody will tell you the opposite. <laughs> well, I, I don't really mean that quite. But what I do mean because you have to be a little careful and not be quite so snotty about things. You know, just because I'm absolutely convinced that A is good for you doesn't mean I'm right. Or absolutely convinced that B will kill you doesn't mean I'm right. I may be right. There may even be data in favor of it. But, you know, I've just seen too many things where we were so sure of ourselves, and then you wait 40 years and you find out everybody's convinced the opposite. It, you know, I even think about this sometimes in terms of uh, politics. And, again, I don't want to get into politics at all. But I do recognize that, you know, if we look back a generation, the things that people thought were good, we're horrified by now. And my guess is that a lot of the things that we feel are appropriate now, politically or culturally, we'll look back and be horrified for. Um, yeah, it's, it's not that we shouldn't have ideas about what's right and wrong. I don't mean that. I just get a little nervous when we're so darn cocksure of ourselves because, you know, wait 50 years, wait 100 years, look back, and you'll be embarrassed by something you did. I just know yeah. I The same thing is true with regard to healthy things. I'm pretty sure I know what's good for you, healthy. But I also recognize that I make mistakes, and so maybe. Yeah. I'm just waiting for 50 years from now when you tell everybody you should take up cigarette smoking because it's good for you. <laughs> no, no. But, but you see what I mean. I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that cigarettes are bad for you. And I think that's true, but, 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 but. <laughs> Here's an example, Scott. If I look back over the past 20 or 30 years at the, the data for coffee, I see one year where they say it's bad for you, and next year they say it's good for you. I've seen this data for strokes, for Parkinson's disease, for uh, blood pressure. And, you know, uh, it's just, <clears throat> I'm not so sure anymore. I'm just not so sure. That doesn't mean I don't have opinions. I'm just not quite so enamored of my own opinions anymore. <laughs> I like that. Drink, drink water, eat food. What, what's the, uh, what's the, I forget the author's name that came up with the, uh, the, uh, the the dietary eat pray love no or no carry water carry water the old Buddhist no it was um it, no it was, it, it was I forget the researcher's name but but it, you know mass longitudinal long term studies about diet and food and the the the, the dietary uh, prescription for the for for longevity and happy life is um, eat food not too much. Most mostly yes. vegetables. Yeah. Yes, right. So I think, yeah, and yeah, don't eat anything your grandmother couldn't pronounce, and eat things from around the outside of the grocery store, not the same right. aisles. Drink, drink water, you know, uh, manage your stress levels, and you'll probably live longer. You might not, but you probably will. Probably, you know. But I still, you know, you never know. Fifty years from now, people look. Oh, actually, I was going to say, fifty years from now, people look back and tell you that vegetarian diets are bad. And you should eat more meat, particularly if you grill it. You know, I. Now, it's not that I believe that, but if you look back, for example, uh, during the Civil War, 
they absolutely forbade the doctors from giving vegetables and vegetable juices to the healing patients. They wanted nothing but meat broth. Well, you know, now we look at that a different way. So who's right? <clears throat> I know what I think, but, you know, again, I, I'm not so much proud of my own certainties anymore. It's just, you know, wait 50 years and see what changes. Right. Read the data and then wait 50 years and read the data again and read some other data. Yeah, we used to have new docs who'd just been hired. You know, they're just getting out of medical school, and they'd come in and say, this article last week was published, proves so-and-so, so we should do this. And my partner and I would look at him and say, yeah, but two years ago, they proved the opposite. Three years before that, they proved what you just said. Five years before that, they proved the opposite. So maybe it's true, maybe it's yeah. not. And I don't mean we shouldn't look at the data. I just mean sometimes the data is lies. Sometimes the data is not as clear as you thought it was. Sometimes you're wrong. Get used to it. <laughs> Uh, I, it's my own personal sort of, um, um, interest. And so, and I don't have, I don't have opportunities to, to talk to people like you that often once a week, but you know, wh what do you, what, <laughs> what do you, um, do you read? Are you interested in cannabis? Uh, it, do you know much about the properties of cannabis? Are you a cannabis user? Uh, would you cop to it if you were like, what's your take on it? I, I wouldn't cop to it if I was. Good. How's that? Um, uh, but I, I do know a great deal about it. Um, you know, both in turn. Well, leave it at that. Yeah, I, something obviously has been of interest in mine since back in the late '60s when I started off the college. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting thing. Yeah. Fair enough. I, I I think I think that we just again on my soapbox for a second because I'm looking at I'm looking at these you know uh, anti aging medicines. Listen, it was a link from a link from a link, and and there's, you know, there's there's how many hundreds hundreds of you know, like I read before from licorice and uh, GCSF, uh, garlic crush ginkgo biloba, and I didn't see cannabis on here, and I was so confused. Like, I think we're gonna look back in ten years, especially in terms of longevity, especially in terms of um uh just sort of general health and cancer fighting um properties of of cannabinols um i didn't see it on here and i was like well I, i'm gonna i'm just gonna ask him about it just to, I, I figured i would uh if, if you could give us any just any more information i'd be I, i'd on your personal thoughts i'd be super interested well my personal thoughts are i don't know when i doubt it um but let me put it this way it, you know it's it, it there are a number of, of documented risks, and it doesn't mean they're right. That just mean there are papers out on this. And not only, obviously, if you smoke it, you can cause some danger to your lungs, your pharynx, and so forth. Um, and, you know, there are questions about uh, long-term memory problems. There are questions about immune function. On the other hand, um, I think most people are aware it tends to make most people a lot calmer, probably brings their blood pressure down. Um, and uh, one thing I will say about it, again, sort of from a professional standpoint, is is Humorously, but it's true. I've seen an awful lot of people in my medical practice when I was doing ER work for 20, 25 years um, who came in who were violent. Um, people who threatened me on PCP, on alcohol. They're nice alcoholics, but mostly they stay home. I only study unpleasant people. <laughs> so, you know, cocaine. I never, never saw somebody who'd been smoking dope who threatened me. You know, <clears throat> they may not remember their name, they may not remember their birthday, but they were awfully nice people. Um, so, from a strict perspective of violence, not, not say nothing of the ability to drive a car or navigate your way down a you know mountainside. 
But from a strict perspective of violence, I got to say, you know, marijuana is in some sense an awfully nice drug compared to PCP, alcohol, cocaine, and a dozen other things I can think of right off the bat. Um, but that's in sort of an odd perspective. I just like it when people don't threaten to kill you. That's a good thing in my book, too. Yeah, we're, we agree on that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, as, as we kind of take, take this thing home, I know you're a busy guy and I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, what, what should people be on the lookout for? Obviously, how can they get, if you could please give us your vitals and we'll, we'll obviously link to, uh, on, on naturalstacks.com show notes and so forth. And, uh, but where, where can people find you and what should people really be looking out for? What's really interesting that, that people should be taking, uh, taking note of? Well, I think that uh, all of medical care is about to change. Um, if we're right about what we're about to do, we're about to be able to essentially uh, wipe out many age-related diseases, and in so doing, lower the global cost of medical care probably by 90%. <sighs> That's an extraordinary, extraordinary idea. You know, almost all the medical advances you can think of raise medical costs. We're looking at lowering them. <clears throat> um, and as I say, treating diseases we've never effectively been able to treat in the past. Um, if people want to know more about that, one, I'd recommend my latest book, just called The Telomerase Revolution. That's uh, out in about uh, seven languages and 10 global editions, and it's in paperback and probably Kindle for all. Yeah, I guess there's a Kindle edition, too. Um, so you could read that, The Telomerase Revolution, give you an idea of what's going on. Uh, you can also follow my uh, my blog or my website. That's michael.fossil, or just michaelfossil.com, I think it is. Um, so you can take a look at that. Um, Leave it at that. We're going to see if we can take this through to FDA trials, but uh, let's see what happens. We'll be watching eagerly and, and cheering you on. Uh, thank you so much for the work that you continue to do. Um, I really have enjoyed reading your book. Um, it's there's such an it's such a wealth of information. There's so much into it, and and the way that you write, there's a sense of humor, there's a sense of realism that that, that that's really refreshing. When it comes to um, you know medical books and stuff like that, so I really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Sean. Keep this up, and let's get together again in a hundred years. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. For additional insights and practical lessons based on this show, go to naturalstacks.com. The Optimal Performance Podcast is a Natural Stacks original. Our executive producers are Dennis Buckley and myself, Sean McCormick. Our producer is Christian Randall. OPP intro music by Odyssey. Additional music provided by That New Jam. A Randy McCandle production. <laughs>